Welcome to The Social Workers radio talk show on WCDB Albany 90.9 FM with co-hosts Dr. Eric Hardiman and Alyssa Lopmore. Here at The Social Workers, we address issues important to our communities with social work students, alumni, and community partners as our guests. As part of the University at Albany School of Social Welfare, we hope to take social work beyond the classroom and agency settings and directly to the public because the public is the client. Catch us on air, online, and anytime. Welcome to The Social Workers on WCDB Albany. We're back again. I'm Eric Hardiman here with Alyssa Lotmore. Welcome back, Alyssa. Hey, Eric. And today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, anxiety, especially yeah, during yeah, the age this, of COVID. This, this conversation we're going to have with our guest in a few minutes is just uh, really, really exciting. A great conversation. I had a lot of fun, um, a lot of learning, a lot of thinking about different topics. You know, the topic ostensibly is about play therapy, but our guest, who you'll hear in a few minutes, uh, you know, really sort of got me thinking about some different things as well. Thinking about anxiety, thinking about our culture, thinking about communication and language, thinking about um, connection between people and how we treat children and sort of what our expectations are. And I just, you know, I found my brain kind of firing on lots of different cylinders. And I think that's, that's always a good sign of a, a great conversation for me. It is. And as a former school social worker, this is, topic has been on my mind a lot because so much of this focus has been on the safety in schools and kids being able to learn remotely. And as a social worker, I'm like, my day was never not busy. I had students who would open up about yeah. big things from being abused at home where I had to call CPS to issues that they were having that were part of normal life, but it was causing them such stress and anxiety. And those issues didn't go away just because of COVID. (laughs) COVID caused a different kind of anxiety and something that's been longstanding for the last two years. And we'll talk about that in this episode, but it did not get rid of all the other aspects of life that a lot of students were and children were going through. And I even remember before things like winter break, and February break when kids would have a week off, some of the behaviors would show up before them because they were getting anxious about having to be home all week. They'd be worried about where they were gonna get food or being home with somebody who might've been hurting them in some way. And I think we don't get into all of those details but we do talk about the anxiety and when parents and teachers, if they observe some children being more anxious or maybe having behaviors, that sometimes it's okay to reach out to ask for help and maybe a type of therapy or counseling is needed to address those issues. It's such a good point, Alyssa. I mean, we're, you know, I said this during our conversation, but we're two years into the pandemic now approximately. And all of the issues that any of us were experiencing prior to the pandemic are still there. Yeah. But they're also, you know, we're living in a very different world right now. I mean, it's a, it's the world is markedly different than it was two years ago. And I think it's really easy to, um, you know, to use some of the language from our conversation to get numb to that, to kind of get used to, you get used to the new normal, but you don't realize all that's changed, all that's stayed the same, all that's been exacerbated. 
And, you know, I, I think it's, it's a really complex, multi-layered um, experience that we're having right now. And so, um, I don't know, I really, I, I thought our conversation with Julie was really great and, you know, got me thinking about some things and I hope that it'll do the same for listeners. Yeah. And aside from talking about children, we also talk about parents and caregivers managing anxiety. And that yeah. was something that I had to check myself at right. uh, back in 2020. Uh, we got quarantined. My daughter had a high risk exposure. She didn't end up getting COVID, but it was two weeks where mm-hmm. I it was when, you know, we didn't know enough back then. And it was two weeks of me having to wear a mask in the house because I didn't know what yeah. to do and yeah. going to get tested and waiting for test results, which took forever back then. And I had her tested like two, three times because it was, I, I wasn't sure they kept saying, come back maybe, you know, and it was so, I was so anxious and I'm like, I don't need to pass this to my kid. My kid's already uncomfortable right now, but she doesn't know why I'm, you know, understand why I have to wear a mask in the house. And I had the windows open. And again, right. this was back in September, 2020, but it, it taught me during that experience that I have to manage my own anxiety and I can't, I have to check myself. Yeah. I don't want my yeah. child to pick up on what I'm feeling. So ever since that experience, you know, the way I handle myself and manage my anxiety has been more in the forefront. And uh, our guest, Julie Bailey, does talk about how we as parents and caregivers can manage our own anxiety so we don't transfer that to our children. Yeah, she does such a nice job of, of um for lack of a better word that I can find right now of normalizing that experience that, that we all need to be self-aware of what we're going through and to give ourselves permission to, you know, to be anxious, to experience anxiety and worry and stress. Um, but then also to be aware about, you know, how we empathize with others, with our children, with our colleagues, with, you know, with anyone around us, with people we encounter out in the community that, you know, it's really easy for tempers to flare. It's really easy for us not to understand what others are going through because we're so consumed with what our own experience is. But I think she does a nice job of um, helping us, you know, sort of be a little more generous with ourselves and think about uh, how we do, how we can do better. And to think about the mental health piece, because I feel like sometimes the news might mention mental health, but they it's more about physical health. And yep. the mental health component is huge and it impacts our health. It really does. It impacts our physical health. I'm a person who has a, when I have anxiety, I get physical symptoms. It always yeah. happens. Uh, I know what they are. Sometimes they switch a little and it freaks me out, but it, it, it does it impact what happens in our mind can impact our body. So it's really important that we're talking about this today and the impact of the pandemic of anxiety on our mental health and how we can best handle that, especially with our youngest children. Yeah, well said. Let's get to the interview. I think this is a great interview that we're going to play for you next with Julie Bailey. I'll introduce herself. I'll introduce Julie in the and the audio that you'll hear in a minute. But uh, thanks for tuning into the Social Workers. Enjoy our interview with Julie Bailey. And welcome to The Social Workers on WCDB Albany. My name is Eric Hardiman, and I'm here with co-host Alyssa Lotmore. Welcome back, Alyssa. Hey, Eric. I'm really excited for this episode today as a social worker who used to work in a school setting and also a mom who's been navigating 
having a child in school during the pandemic. I'm really excited to be talking with our guest today, who you can hopefully give us a really good introduction to. Yeah, and also a return guest to the social workers. It's always nice to have guests back to hear what they've been doing. And it's, it's just always nice to have a familiar um, voice on our show. So today we have with us on the social workers, we have Julie Bailey, who is a licensed clinical social worker and has been a children's therapist for approximately 20 years. After obtaining her master's of science in social work at the University of Texas at Austin, she participated in a year-long certification course through Boston University, specific to psychotherapy with children and the utilization of play therapy. She currently uses a variety of treatment strategies in her work at Northern Rivers here in the Albany area, including play therapy with children who have been sexually abused and traumatized. She's also a part-time lecturer at the University at Albany in the School of Social Welfare for MSW students. She teaches a course entitled Social Work Practice with Children. Julie, welcome back to The Social Workers. We're glad to have you here today. Hi, thank you so much for having me back. I really appreciate you guys thinking of me. No, and like you've been on twice, you came on to discuss your working with children with anxiety and also play therapy. And both of those episodes have been downloaded. They're in our top five for most downloads. So it's definitely wow. a topic that people are interested in. Uh, as I said earlier, I'm interested in it as I worked with children in my pre higher ed days and also as a mom and seeing what some of my daughter's friends have been going through with the anxiety with the pandemic and just how all this is related. I'm really excited to have you on to talk today. Yeah. Thank you so much. And unfortunately, anxiety is a very relevant topic to almost everybody right now. Yeah, so I'm curious, maybe just start off by telling us since the last time we had you on the show, what, you know, what, what's been um, taking up most of your professional time and sort of what what is your main focus been recently? Well, I think there's a couple different answers as you as you've kind of described my hands in a few different pots professionally. Um, but you know, I think a word that's been tossed around a lot, and you know, sometimes I don't like putting out there phrases that get people kind of triggered. Um, but one is the the COVID fatigue, right? Um, there's been a lot of talk lately about you know a, a couple of years ago, and certainly when I did um, the first talk here with you all on anxiety, we did not think that we'd be coming back still in a pandemic dealing with COVID impact issues. And now it's the how that anxiety has perpetuated and stayed over time. And I think that's something that we're really dealing with in all different areas, personally, professionally, everybody's experiencing this. Um, and I think that's really important to take a look at because what started off as kind of a stressor and dealing with changes and trying to adapt to lockdowns and things pausing um, turned into things restarting and how do we stay safe? And then it keeps going. Um, COVID is like a really great way to uh, get anxiety going. It's unpredictable, things change all the time. And that is a recipe for disaster with anxiety. Anxiety loves it. But for those of us who experience anxiety or have fits of anxiety, that is not a good thing. So um, I think that's what we're seeing is this kind of long-term stress and how it's playing out in our lives and in our kids' lives and at work and things like that. Yeah, and I'm also, I'm, I'm so I'm also curious, is you're working with kids, I mean, that's your focus. How do you handle parents with anxiety and even other clinicians, you might have coworkers or yourself with all of this anxiety related to COVID or life changes or things that are going on in your own life. 
and having that are resulting in anxiety for yourself or for them, how do then they work with children? <laughs> that's an excellent question. And I think that's a really good point. And I'm glad you asked that. Um, thinking about caregivers and how caregivers are doing through this is really important. But I think one thing that needs to be said before thinking about caregivers is understanding that we use the term anxiety really loosely. We, you know, anybody I talk to is like, I'm anxious, I'm anxious. It's a very common term and everybody is feeling it, which in some way everyone is. Anxiety is normal. Everybody or most everybody experiences anxiety. But I do think there's um, some importance in recognizing some of the little bit of distinguishing terms that really capture what anxiety is versus stress and then versus trauma. Because when I was talking before about how this is this prolonged issue of COVID and all of these changes, we are seeing kids go from this stress and dealing with the stress to starting to be anxious and worrying about things that they didn't worry before. And now these youth that we're dealing with, um, I'll go back to your first question, Eric, is the traumatic stress and the trauma. And I think it's really important that people understand some of those differences because we have to know what we're dealing with when we see kids in our in our life, in our home, in our work, in our schools, and understanding some of those differences. So really quickly, I can just kind of give a little snapshot of how I try to remember that. Yes, do, yeah. <laughs> That's okay, I'll just keep That's going. great, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, stress is usually an external thing that's going on that we're reacting to. Um, I like to use an example of a test because we've all probably taken a test at some point. So if we know we have a test coming up, our stress might be a little more increased, a little stressed about it. Um, we might worry about it a little bit. We take the test, the test is done, we get whatever grade, we kind of calm down and we move on to the next thing. Maybe it's stressing out about the next test, but we kind of go on. Anxiety is more of an internal reaction to something. It's something that's going on inside of you and it can continue to exist even when the stressor is gone. So anxiety is more of an internal message that we're telling ourselves rather than an external event that's pushing us into a stressful state. When we get into like traumatic stress or trauma, that's more of like where uh, somebody has experienced an incident that's traumatic or extremely stressful, and they're really having a hard time moving on from it. So it's a little different than both the stress definition and the anxiety definition. Children who experience traumatic stress might not be able to just settle in even after that stressor is gone and it continues to stay there. And so that, that can be where kids can end up developing not just traumatic stress, but trauma or PTSD. Um, and those are really very similar things, but really important to distinguish. When you're looking at something like COVID, that stressor has not alleviated. We've continued to live with that, right? So we have a a stressor that's just not gone away. Um, so we are seeing kids move into kids who could maybe just get stressed. Maybe they're worried that a game was canceled and they couldn't do their activity to starting to be more anxious. And now we're seeing kids who are experiencing trauma um, who maybe also had other traumas in their life. And I'm so glad you're talking about this because so many, I don't, maybe it's just what the, the outlets that I'm listening to, but they're, no one's really talking a lot about how this is impacting kids. They're talking about, oh, they, they can just work, you know, work remotely today or, or they're adjusting it's, but they're not really talking about the mental health aspect or it's briefly mentioned, but not talking about how that can result in trauma and how the stress is turning to anxiety, which is turning to trauma. So I'm really glad that you're talking about this and breaking it down because I think even as parents, we might see changes in our kids and are like, what's going on? Is it just something that I just talked to them about and it's over and done with, or how do we make this better? Do we need to go to counseling? So 
that's some of the things that, you know, I've been hearing in discussions with parents, but it's not really addressed on the, the mainstream media level at times. And I think a lot of parents might be searching for, what do I do? Yeah, I think that's very common. I think there's a couple of things that happen there. You know, parents are wondering, what am I supposed to do? We don't have control over this. Not having control is a trigger for stress and anxiety and trauma. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also a little bit of numbing that's gone on. I think there's the sense of like, this yeah. is just what we're dealing with now. It's what we have to do. People are kind of numbing that to it. And then we're kind of expecting our kids just to be like, yeah, you've got to be remote today. You can handle this. We've been doing this for two years. So it's almost like in an attempt to um, deal with it, there is this little bit of numbing. And I think that does make us miss things where you know a kid can be handling everything okay. And all of a sudden they hear that one day of school is going to be remote and they lose it. And parents are like, seriously, we've been fine all along. And they're kind of taken by surprise. Right. Um, one, one thing that's really important to think about is, and I, I talk about this all the time in my class and even at work um, yesterday, I was going, going on and on, but there is a, you know, a physiological response that happens in our bodies when we become anxious and there's a nervous system response. And when that, when that happens too much and that starts to get into more trauma, our brains does things to protect us. Some of that, which is like numbing or kind of avoidance or just kind of saying, I'm shutting down right now, which we're seeing caregivers do a lot of, Alyssa. I think that's, you know, it was like, we don't want to talk about it anymore. Let's not talk about this. Um, and those are kind of protective factors. But the other thing is that when we're in a heightened nervous system state or, you know, like I felt like a big feeling moment with my kids or their parents, it's hard for us to really be empathic in that moment. If you think of a time you've been super anxious or super angry, it's really hard to turn that into, oh, but how are you feeling, right? And so during those times of high anxiety, it's gonna be hard, not just for us to be empathic to how our kids are feeling and doing, but we have to remember it's gonna be hard for the kids who are feeling stressed and anxious to have thoughtful empathic responses as well. And so it's almost kind of turns into this um, power struggle where people start getting kind of more irritated or frustrated with each other and it, um, and I think that then causes problems. And a lot of the complaints I hear from parents and kids is teachers are mad at me, staff is frustrated with me, I'm not doing a good job. It's not being recognized as anxiety and a mental health issue. It's being recognized as, you know, kids don't want to keep their masks up anymore, they're frustrated, you know, they're getting yelled at for different things. And I think that's really born out of we've been in this state for so long, people are, you know, losing track of how to calm back down to be able to have those empathic and caring responses. And I know I just said a lot there, but that does go back to the caregiver piece because Mm -hmm. what is critical in helping our youth is something we like to call caregiver affect management. Caregivers have to be able to understand how they're feeling, how they're responding to stress. If they are going into that numbing or disconnect mode and then be able to respond accordingly. It's really interesting. I, I want to, I mean, you, you did say a lot there and there's so much that's really, I think, incredibly valuable uh, to families, to providers, to, you know, maybe to kids themselves, to youth themselves. But w- when you talk about this numbing phenomenon, I'm really curious because I was, I was just thinking as you were talking, remembering back toward, I mean, we're, we're two years into this collective experience approximately and uh, of the pandemic and responses to the pandemic and I remember somewhat near the beginning thinking in in a uh, (laughs) you know maybe a naively optimistic way that because of the universality of what everybody's experiencing that we're all experiencing 
anxiety. We're all experiencing stress. We're all collectively going through this together. I remember thinking maybe now people will have some increased empathy for those who experience severe anxiety or those who experience traumatic anxiety. Maybe people collectively in our society will get it because we're all kind of going through some level of anxiety. Um, but I think what I heard you say, and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about is, you know, what is the impact of the numbing effect where, you know, maybe that happened toward the beginning of the, of the um, pandemic where people started to understand and empathize more and then the numbing effect happens and then it, it sort of decreases. So I'm, I'm just curious to hear, have you seen ebbs and flows through the course of the pandemic? What, you know, where are we now? Um, any of that would be really interesting to hear about. Yeah, certainly. I think it ebbs and flows. And, you know, I think it ebbs and flows with, you know, we just had this surge and certainly that that spiked a lot of uh, people went back to recognizing more anxiety versus before that. I think we were more in kind of a numbing. We can deal with this. We can move on uh, type of way. And I think, you know, that's that's what happens is that it, it's hard to be in an anxious state too long. So your brain starts trying to adapt to it in different ways. And then we kind of lose sight. Maybe what's at the origin of the struggles we're having is anxiety. Um, I like to think about anxiety as being very individualized. Though it's so common, it's very individualized and anxiety is gonna find its own way based on anyone's individual brain of how it can not just latch on, but how it can say, you need me to survive, right? So then it's gonna, you know, as your brain tries to cope with that, it might come up with all sorts of maladaptive ways to, to try to combat that. And that's where that numbing process can take place. You know, it can happen differently in each person because it is very individualized. Um, but that's that's where that can happen. And I think that that's where um, we get a little bit more into the, the frustration and the, the, the reactions to kids um, and families mm. that are a little less empathic and more like, come on, let's just pull it together. Let's just move on. Let's just do what we need to do. And, and are there ways that, that you've heard about or thought about, and you know, I'm sort of expanding this to the larger society and our larger culture, but ways to address on a big level that numbing? Like, is there, is there a conversation to be had and do social workers potentially have a role in that conversation to be raising awareness about this numbing effect or about how to, you know, how to move beyond it so that we can have more empathy? Well, I, I absolutely do think there are ways. And I think there's a lot that we can do as social workers, as parents, that school professionals can do. Because I think while anxiety can be very overwhelming, it can lead to all sorts of, like I said, maladaptive coping strategies that can lead to increased frustrations and problems. And, you know, like when that brain's activated, we don't problem solve as well. So then when we're trying to figure out how to make things better in our world, no one can think straight, right? Um, but there are a lot of things we can do that help. And I think, especially when you're thinking about kids, we can use that to kind of model maybe how to help the greater society. And one of the things that you look at, if you're, if you're like, if I have a kid in my session who is really struggling with stress, anxiety, or trauma, any of, any of those, one of the things that sometimes helps to just decrease that nervous system and get them back into more of that rational problem-solving mode is just the connection with them, just that attunement process, saying, hi, I see you, how are you? That eye contact, hello, you're here in my office and right now we're safe. Just those basic, easy, you know, one-on-one social work messages brings the temperature down and helps the kids say, oh yeah. And then they can start talking and they have a little bit more of those emotions and say, it was really hard and they get the validation. So finding that connection with a child 
can really reduce that nervous system so that they can be in more of a thoughtful process with you. That's what we have to help make sure parents understand, who then then can hopefully help make sure more systems understand, bring it back to that basic human connection. Yeah. That's one thing I was thinking about when before we were coming on the show today is about that connection piece. Because I just know as a school, when I was in the school setting, I would just, I would just smile at a kid and it would change how their mood was when they saw somebody that recognized them and saw them or, you know, gave them a smile. And I was, I think of things like with masks on and where kids aren't able to see facial expressions. And when I used to just pull kids in my office and they'd sit next to me and that I didn't even have to say anything and they'd calm down and just so many ways that I would build rapport and having, you know, build that connection. And I look at the social distancing and the masks. And I also, I wonder how that does play a role in some of the ways that you know, teachers or other school staff or coaches would used to have ways to build connections that now are not the same. You're not seeing the smiles all the time, you know, based on your location. Um, you're not being able to have that close contact where you might have had before. So I'm just curious, do you see any difference in, in the ways individuals build rapport and how that might be changing how some kids are handling anxiety. Yeah, I think we definitely have challenges with that because of the restrictions we have that we all, you know, to, to stay safe. Um, even like with telehealth, you, that's a very different way of kind of being present and connected to that child. And that does impact the process. Um, however, I think that's one thing also that helps to, you know, like I'm talking about the brain and how that affects, but to decrease the nervous system is by saying, this is how we're safe. We're okay right now because you know, we're staying six feet apart or we're talking over the screen right now because we're both safe. So we can kind of reframe that to help use that as a way to say, hey, we are safe. One thing that I found really interesting because I, you know, I love attachment theory and I'm a very um, relationship-based therapist as you might've heard me talk about before. Um, and I, you know, I thought early on, like having the masks in the sessions, like how is that gonna be with this whole interpersonal process? Yeah. Um, what I found is that, kids really adapted to that pretty quickly. Um, mm. I have two examples that I think I could share, but one of my clients who she's, she's very young, um, she's four, and um, we were getting to know each other through the pandemic, and she was in my office with the mask, and I thought she's never really even seen my full face, and we were still just doing some of the basic strategies of kind of rapport building, and obviously using play therapy, because that's my favorite, um, and it was going really well. And I walked her down uh, her car because um, we're limiting the people in, in the office at that time. And when she got in the car, she pulled her mask down and smiled at me. And I did the same. And, and when I did the same and I smiled, her eyes lit up as if, whoa, that's you. And it was just kind of amazing. And it really just struck me that there is a piece missing. Um, on the flip side, another little guy that I work with, who also happens to be four, um, just recently, I've been working with him for a long time. So he, he's gone through having to wear the mask in my office. Um, but just the other day, he was doing something with his eyes. And I said, what are you, what are you doing with your eyes? And he said, I want to see if you can tell what I'm feeling by my eyes. And we did a whole activity back and forth with just changing the way our eyes and our eyebrows are to, to guess each other's feelings. And what I found is he was guessing them all accurately. He was like, oh, you're sad. So our eyes are very expressive. So we still yeah. have tools to use to help make those connections with kids and they're adapting to that pretty well while we talk about how 
how stressful and how prolonged and how many of our youth are really into more of that traumatic stress or trauma mode, there's also a layer we're seeing of, you know, wonderful resilience and adaptability. Um, and those factors can be, are also very individualized based on a lot of things in a child's life, but we are seeing that too. And that's really important to acknowledge. So, so Julie, you mentioned, it's a wonderful examples. Thank you. Um, you mentioned two concepts. I mean, one is attachment, which clearly attachment theory is, is undergirding a lot of play therapy and what you do. Um, but also, you know, maybe a term that's a little more applicable in a larger, you know, lay audience for a larger lay audience, which would be connection. You talked about the, the importance of connection. Um, my own research and work is in peer support and that idea of connection between people experiencing similar things. So I'm, I'm really, really curious, is there an element of peer-based connection um, that you work with or that you've thought about or that might have some implications for how kids um, or even caregivers, parents, caregivers, grandparents, whoever they might be, um, might potentially build connection with each other and not just with therapists and social workers and helpers, but is there something that we can help build uh, connection-wise with peers? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a wonderful concept because anytime you can be with somebody in a shared experience and kind of get that validation and that connection, that's naturally going to help. I think any, any opportunities individuals have to do that is extremely powerful. Um, I think we do see that a little bit in some, you know, parent forums with school things and um, in getting kids knowing they're all, they're all wearing the masks together. I mean, that's kind of a broader, broader concept of a, of a shared thing. So being able to talk about that. So I think those opportunities um, are extremely important. I think those have to happen with a, a shared sense of, you know, validating and listening to each other's feelings. I think sometimes we, we get into these forums and, and it can go south real quick because people aren't totally self-aware. And that kind of goes back to that caregiver affect management piece yeah. um, that I referenced where you, you have to really be aware of how you're feeling so that you can go into those settings and get as much out of it as you probably could because you can be aware of your feelings, but also be ready to hear and receive the feelings of others. Great. So Julie, you mentioned, you were talking about play therapy and there's different types of treatment. I know last time that you talked about uh, cognitive behavioral approaches and then play therapy approaches. And if parents are seeing anxiety or teachers are seeing anxiety with their the students or the children, what, can you explain a little bit about the different therapy options and the things that you're doing to with the uh, clients or children that you're working mm -hmm. with? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think if parents are starting to feel like their kids are having prolonged stress or anxiety that not being managed by some of the, you know, typical coping strategies you might see on Facebook or wherever parents might go to try to say, how do I help my kid calm down? Um, you know, it is always a good idea to, to call a counselor or talk to the school social worker to see if there's, you know, other strategies maybe the parent hasn't thought of or if they do need to get, um, you know, professional help and kind of sift through what, what exactly is going on. And based on the child and their circumstances and, and a lot of varying factors, um, the counselor hopefully will be able to kind of discern what treatment strategy might be best. Um, for kids who have uh, not, not too many other traumatic life events, who are in um, homes where attachment is good enough um, and they have some solid attachment figures, then they may be able to enter into counseling even over telehealth that's really cognitive based 
to do some of those cognitive behavioral strategies. Really young kids are gonna struggle with those because their cognitive brain isn't fully developed. And so that's where it, um, techniques like play therapy really come into handy because kids can really process thoughts and feelings in play before they've really grasped verbal capabilities to do it. The other really important thing to keep in mind for any child is like I was saying before, anxiety, especially if it's become more of the traumatic stress or trauma, is going to mean that the child's brain is kind of in a heightened nervous state all the time. And when our brains are in that heightened nervous state, it's really hard to access the thinking and rational and reasoning part of our brain. And this is an area where I think sometimes therapists or social workers um, forget a little bit because we dive into the CBT strategies, which are so easy to use because there's so many of them. And we forget that the first step of that is really helping the child uh, decrease that nervous system response because they're not going to be able to engage in the cognitive behavioral strategies until that nervous system response has been uh, calmed down, basically. What's really important for anybody working with kids to remember is anxiety is going to tell that youth that it needs that heightened response to stay safe. Maybe they feel like that heightened response and being on guard all the time is what's protected them this far in whatever experience they've had. So if we just sit and say, oh, I know a great method to help bring down your nervous system. We're going to do deep breathing. A lot of times kids are like, nope, that doesn't work for me. I've heard that almost 100% from youth. And one of the reasons is because we have to help them see that they're safe and they're okay with us to actually feel that sense of relaxation. So then we can begin some of those cognitive-based strategies. And I think we lose sight of that. It does go back to needing to have that attunement and attachment and the connection right. so that actually experience safety, which will decrease the whole nervous system. And over time, once that's established with the counselor, then a lot of those wonderful cognitive behavioral strategies will work very well. I, I make that case because that's where play therapy or other creative arts therapy, like art therapy or sand tray, those things can really be used in the therapeutic relationship to help establish that attachment let the kids know you understand their feelings, even when they haven't been able to verbalize it, decrease that nervous system arousal and help them begin to do other work later on down the road. And can you clarify play therapy? Because sometimes when I would talk to individuals, they're like, oh, the, the child comes into my office and we play a game and we'll color, but that's building rapport. That's things that are very different than what play therapy is. So can you explain, because I know you have certification in that. Can you explain a little bit more about what play therapy is and the difference from playing a game or drawing while you're building rapport? I love that you asked that question, Alyssa, because that is like the most common misconception of play therapy. And anybody who ever talks to me about play therapy, here's my rant about this. <laughs> um, but so thank you for asking that. Um, no, play therapy is the process where play is the language. The goal of play therapy is not to get a child to talk to you. Play therapy is where play is the language and where the interventions occur. So the child expresses themselves in whatever way they need to with the play objects in the room and the interventions are all done through play. When I first learned of that way back long ago, though we won't <laughs> talk about how long ago, um, I was like, what, that doesn't make any sense. Now I have all these years under my belt and it's a, extremely powerful. And you know, I really swear by it because it is such a natural form of communication. It was developed because people realized this is the way that children naturally communicate. Um, and that is different than talk therapy approaches that incorporate play to help facilitate a talk therapy counseling intervention. 
those are not bad. It's not wrong. There are some children who do so wonderful in counseling with a talk therapist by utilizing play-based activities. But what's important to distinguish is that that's not play therapy. That's using play-based activities to facilitate talk therapy versus play therapy, which is play is the language and the child really guides that process. And is there an age limit, I guess, or can any age adolescent do play therapy? Is it mostly for younger kids? Um, yeah, I would, you know, there's no limit. I have had parents in my office. I had one mom and she kept looking at the dollhouse and the, and the, and the Barbie that I had in there. And I said, you want to, you want to look at it? You can. She's like, it's just reminding me of mine. And she pulled the Barbie out and she was brushing, brushing their hair. And I was like, we can have a play session. I didn't say it like that. I didn't want her to make her uncomfortable, but there's really no age limit. It's really about the needs of the child. Some kids are really, they, they, that's just the best way for them to express themselves. I have a little three-year-old several years ago. I was like, oh, she's, this is going to be great. She's going to be a play therapy kid. And she came in, she sat down with her water bottle and she said, you want to talk about our days over tea? And I was like, oh, she's going to be a talk therapy kid. I did not predict that. So it's really part of the individualized assessment to kind of figure out if this is going to be a modality that works with that child. Also, you know, there should be some training involved. Play therapy can be very subjective. And I've seen people jump into kind of analyzing a child's play. And I'm like, no, it doesn't really mean that. It's, it's a lot of feelings expression. It's not literal. So training and, you know, certification um, is a really important part of therapy as well. Yeah, the, the idea, the concept that you just brought up of, of play as language is a really fascinating one, um, because I think that brings, to, to me, it brings up also the notion that, <clears throat> particularly in Western society, uh, we, we have this implicit assumption that people should talk through their problems and that that verbal conversation is the you know, the sole way, the primary way, if you will, to, to um, you know, to reach positive change in one's life. And, and I think play therapy is a really good example of looking at it differently and saying that, that you know, maybe the same language, it, it doesn't get applied across all populations and all persons. And maybe there are people, particularly children in our culture, but in other cultures, it might be adults, for whom verbal talk therapy is not really the, the most appropriate mode, but there might be other types of communication and language um, that, that are more appropriate. So I, I'm really excited to hear about that notion of language, play as language. Yeah, and you know, I, I can agree to someone who hasn't really done that before, it can sound kind of odd. I, I can say that, um, you know, working with children who've experienced sexual abuse, I have had kids use various play objects in my office to describe, you know, intense feelings of helplessness and lack of protectors. And they'll find different objects, you know, toys or animal figures and really act out the feeling of being completely helpless and scared. And then we can process those feelings with the little dinosaurs or horses. And that is so powerful. And I've had kids leave and just say like, wow, I feel so much better. Um, and they, they don't know why the weight is lifted because the dinosaurs just really went at it, but, but you can see the, the change in them over time and it, it's incredibly powerful. And I think it does maybe warrant a little more uh, conversation in the greater society because we do have an idea of just talking through it. And that does tie back into anxiety because it's very hard to talk through an anxiety problem if you're in an anxious state because yeah. you might not be really in your best 
uh, cognitive brain to talk it through. You might need something like, you know, using a therapy animal or your own cat or dog, right? You feel that sense of relaxation. Sometimes we need something that's not language-based to help with those issues. Right. And have you been able to do play therapy? I know we talked a lot about telehealth and things that you were doing during the pandemic. Have you been able to still incorporate play therapy during a telehealth session with a, a child? been very case dependent. There have been some kids who really like are able to go, they find their own toys and objects and say, we're going to come and you're going to watch. And I'm like, okay. Um, and then there's been some who, you know, unfortunately, kids don't always have those kinds of materials in their homes, or they don't always have uh, the space that they need to really kind of engage in that. So it's really been really complicated and a lot that too. You know, I, I think it's been very fortunate we have technology to remain connected with kids. And some kids have used some play over my telehealth sessions, but it just doesn't feel like it's really taken the place of having that child in my office with the, you know, the variety of all the stuff I've collected over these 20 years. Um, but yes, I think then kids have been adaptable to finding some creative ways to engage in some expressive modes over the telehealth. So if you've just tuned in, we've been talking with Julie Bailey, who's a children's therapist and who works at Northern Rivers here in Albany as a play therapist, social worker. Um, and uh, it's, it's great talking with you, Julie. Do you have other, you know, anything else you want to share with us about the, um, the impact, you know, you know, maybe how about the impact on you uh, doing this type of work? What type of... Um, I don't want to say revelations, but but what type of impact has it had on you personally uh, the la last couple of years? Well, it's made me think a lot. <laughs> I'm an overthinker and an overanalyzer, and that comes out of my own anxiety because I'm also an anxious person and I have my own anxious children. So it's really forced me to examine some of the practices we've used before and how do those fit in with what we're doing now. And I think that's what's really brought me back to that whole concept of um it's really not that complicated. It's the basics of what we always have known about interacting with kids, which is the connection, the attachment, you know, working on ways to just create safety when kids feel safe, when adults feel safe, things are better, things are a little calmer. So, so it's caused a lot of analyzing in my own personal and professional life, um, but I keep always coming back to the basics of what we know. One of my favorite quotes that I, and I don't have it verbatim, but I, I reference it a lot, in my class and at work is um, actually from Bessel van der Kolk, who is a trauma uh, researcher. Um, he wrote an article called Developmental Trauma. It was like trying towards a more rational diagnosis was the uh, technical name of the article. But in it, he talks about helping kids regulate, help regulate their emotions. And, and that can be you know anxiety and trauma and things like that as part of the article. And one of the things he says is, you know, it's okay to have fun. We can have fun with our youth. We can have fun with them in therapy. We can have fun with our kids, even when we're so anxious and stressed. Because if we can have fun and regulate while we're having fun, then we're learning skills of regulation and then use when we get really stressed out. I think kind of the takeaway that I think would be really important is it's been really hard and we've all been dealing with really hard things and it's okay to feel exhausted by the stress, the anxiety or the trauma, but there's a lot of things we can do, just the basic connection you know, having a bonding moment with your kid, even if it's just, you know, having a bowl of ice cream and then having fun. It's okay to still have fun, even though we're dealing with a lot of crazy things. Yeah. So, and if there are parents out there listening or caregivers, um, 
where would you recommend that they reach out? Are there places on the internet? Are there resources where they can find information about uh, anxiety in general, both for them as caregivers or for their children? You know, there's a lot of resources out there. You can Google things and go down rabbit holes left and right. There's a lot of great resources about anxiety that can give you some strategies. What I would say is if you're finding some of those resources and you're thinking this isn't working, then maybe it's time to connect with someone else. Um, I know school social workers are dealing with a lot right now, but I still do think that touching base with a school social worker might be a way to kind of easily access some help to discern, you know, does the child maybe need some school support or do we need to look for outside support? Um, I know one impact of all of this is that wait lists are, you know, ridiculous right now. And it is hard for parents to get in places. Um, another avenue that I have found to be helpful um, for myself and for other, other families I've worked with is to talk to your pediatrician. I think the pediatricians sometimes can help evaluate with parents together about like, is this something we can kind of figure out how to manage while you're on a wait list or do I need to help, you know, facilitate something quicker? So, you know, use the resources around you. Um, I think those are two great places to start. Um, and there are a lot of counseling places out there, um, but I know wait lists are, are long and that that's really challenging. But there are resources and there are even strategies at home for parents. Um, and it's, it's okay to reach out and ask somebody, even for my own daughter as a social worker, I'm a social worker and I still talk to the pediatrician and I still had my daughter go to a counselor because there was a lot that, that we were dealing with during this. And as a parent, sometimes you're so connected that you have that emotional attachment to where it kind of, even though you have social work skills, or if you are a counselor yourself, it's different when it's your own kid. So sometimes Absolutely. it's just nice to talk to someone else and say, hey, is there a way that you can help my child with the anxiety or just to make sure that everything's going okay because this is such a time where there's been so much unpredictability and where kids are excited about things and then they get canceled and it's just so much constant, like a roller coaster of emotion and it's okay to reach out. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what you just said is really important because I think sometimes we just need that check. Like, is this still okay? Is my kid still okay? Even though I'm a social worker, I just need to know. Um, and that's something that parents need to, like a, a parent might need someone to talk to first to, to kind of get themselves in check, you know, and that might be what helps their child. So it's okay for parents um, to get help too. And it's okay for social workers to get help too, because we've been dealing with a lot. So, yeah. so I think that's really important. You know, we all want to be able to respond to each other as in the most empathic and caring ways, having those connections. If we're too uh, anxious about our own reactions to things, then it's okay to ask for help. And there are, like you said, there's a lot of resources out there. Super helpful, Julie. Thank you so much for talking with us and for giving us, you know, new ways of thinking about anxiety and new ways of thinking about connection and how to help kids and caregivers. And, you know, I, I feel like you've really um, given us a lot, a lot of food for thought here, a lot of things to think about. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate getting to come back and talk to you both. It's always a lot of fun and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. So we've been talking with Julie Bailey, who's a licensed clinical social worker and children's therapist here in the Albany area. Uh, it's been a great conversation, and we will catch you the next time here on The Social Workers. Thanks for listening to WCDB Albany.